Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Today we are talking about one of my favorite things. Oh my God. Yes. So exciting. Harry Potter. Harry Potter. And while, yes, I could just talk about Harry Potter, we're going to look at women and feminism of Harry Potter. <laughs> and some added. Yes, yeah, and bonus Jane Eyre discussion. Yes, yes, which I love. But I also love Harry Potter, so I'm not, I, I don't know why I'm acting so cool about it, because I do, I really, you and I bonded to the fact that I do really love Harry Potter. I just don't go all out and wear the things. As or I, do fan fiction. I see. I see your subtle jab, not no, so no, no, subtle no, no, jab. No, no. <laughs> I, I admire people who love things. And I love Harry Potter. Um, it was and slash still is because my mom, you know, once you like something, right. it's forever. Uh, it's my thing. Yes. Every year she gets me Harry Potter stuff. Oh, no. Every time I think about a present, I'm like, I can't do Harry Potter. I know her mom's going to get her like 15 <laughs> things. So that's fine. She for That's covered. From probably mid middle of middle school to high school, every year she got me these really ornate Harry Potter snow globes. Aww. They're awesome. And I don't know what to do with them because my apartment's really small, but I right. love them. If you could put it like taped to the wall, that'd be best for you, wouldn't it? <laughs> snow globe taped to the wall. <laughs> Nothing could go wrong there. Um, I will say you are one of the more fun people to buy for because you have a lot of loves that yeah. is very tangible. Yes. Which is really nice. So thank you for being that person. You're welcome. Yeah. I did it all for you. I know. I know. <laughs> um, it, so there are a few significant moments in my life that um, were made by my love of Harry Potter. There are certain trips I take, I took that were for Harry Potter. They right. were for other things, right. but Harry Potter was in there. And I am of the generation that aged with it. I graduated high school when the, the last book came out, um, and I graduated college when the last movie came out. It was a really big part of my life. You know, I actually had a really good friend of mine from college who was also loved. She was the reason I started watching Harry Potter because she loved it so much. I actually went to a midnight viewing of Harry Potter, Harry Potter and Goblet of Fire. Yeah. That's what I think got me into starting, to, oh, I actually like this. Let me go back and read what happened. Mm-hmm. And also because I can't wait, I want to know what happened. Yes. So I went forward and started reading everything. And I think by the time I got into it, everything was published. Ooh. So I was already cool into it but this was yeah. her escape like she had a really really rough childhood very empathetic to the point that it hurts her she's one of those mm-hmm. and having harry potter as her world or as a part of who she was really helped her i think survive a bit of the backlash that was her family mm-hmm. again not the backlash but the um problems that were within her fam- within her family and yeah. her own like financial stuff harry potter got her through a lot of that so yeah i think i love that we we're getting to talk about this because that's exactly what she kind of jumps into which i never thought about yeah and interestingly kind of off of that if you go back in her trauma episodes my most Probably my most traumatic time was 14 to 15, and that's when Goblet of Fire came out. Mm -hmm. And I just remember taking such refuge in it, even though it was probably the first one that was really difficult. It was really hard, yeah. Um, But it it just swept you up, and they're they're essentially mysteries. It is. And so you're trying to figure out who did it, what's going on. And it it was also, yeah, for me, a way to kind of deal with what I was going through. And they continue to be that. Um, uh, yeah, I've made friends off of them. They're so It was so powerful. And I did want to give a brief 
overview, we're not the only people who like Harry Potter. Surprise, surprise. Um, the first book, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, came out in 1997. And the series of seven books went on to sell millions of copies, 500 million copies, more than that. It's the best-selling series of books of all time. Um, yeah, and for people who didn't grow up during this or maybe somehow missed it, it's hard to capture how popular they were. We waited in line at bookstores right. at midnight. They had midnight releases of books, which is ridiculously rare. Yes, and then we would stay up all night mm-hmm. and read them. I have pictures of everyone because I actually didn't get into them until the third one came out. So I have a picture of four through seven, me and all my friends. It's even five a.m. and we're trying to beat each other. Right. <laughs> and I love the fact that it's still ongoing. My niece, yes. who is still in high school, I think she's now ninth grade. Ooh, I'm sorry, Grace. I'm, I'm sorry, Annie. Whoa. <laughs> I'm sorry, Addie. There's too many nieces and nephew. Yes. I'm swear to God. They're all A's except okay. for... No, that's not true. Um, anyway, she has now gotten into it and is completely obsessed and loves everything about Harry Potter. And I love it. It's been so long yeah. since the last book was released. All the movies are done. People have kind of gone on, but it's still a big thing in their world. In, in the world, because it's kind of timeless, mm-hmm. kind of like the Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. um, and all of the trilogy, it kind of continues goes continue, continues to be relevant because it's their own world, which is yeah. fantastic. Yeah, my nephew, he's eight or nine, and he just got into them, and I feel like the coolest person ever right. because he visited my old house where I grew up, and it, it was essentially a shrine to Harry Potter. <laughs> and it's all been confined into one section now that doesn't really fit with the adult guest room vibe of right. the rest of the room. <laughs> but he goes in there, and he's just in love, and we got in um, like a trivia contest with each other. That's right. And just... Seeing that level of fandom for this book series, that yeah, it's been over for a long time. The movie series has been over, uh, and then when you go, we went to the Harry Potter world in Universal, and the just the wide range of right. ages and diverse groups of people there. <laughs> that shows it's really popular, and a lot of people connect with it still. Right. Yes. Um, the movies were huge box office successes, and the theme park is a huge hit, huge moneymaker. Someone will wait in about a four-hour line to get to the ride. Four to five hours, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, the last four installments of the books set records for fastest-selling books, and the last one sold 11 million copies in 24 hours, the wow. first 24 hours. Wow. Yes, and my favorite thing I did with that one is I wrote out my theory before I read it, as you know I like to do. Yes. And as I was reading, I updated the theory. And, you know, towards 7 a.m., the theory is perhaps not very good. (laughs) And it was really funny. I thought the spirit of Dumbledore was trapped inside a wand and was going to come out. (laughs) That's intense. I'm so glad I wrote it down, though. It gives me so much joy. Did you include that into your fan fiction, though, since it wasn't in the actual books? You created your own. I did not include that in my fan fiction. No. Mm. I, I, you need to redo. I think you need to redo some things. You're right. It's unfinished. Oh. Oh, gosh. But it's, I know. It's true. It's true. Maybe I could bring Harry back. Uh, oh, also, I, I forgot about this. The New York Times created a second bestseller, not a second, a, a bestseller list specifically for children's literature because the Harry Potter books were taking up all of them mm-hmm. and people were mad. <laughs> Like, authors were mad about it. So they did that in the year 2000 before Goblet of Fire came out. Oh, smart. Yeah. 
<laughs> and the value of the franchise is estimated to be around $25 billion, one of the most lucrative franchises of all time. It's still going. It is still going. Fantastic Beast stuff and yeah. the plays. Yep. Which I did see. I did see it. The popularity of the series has, yeah, it spawned a massive fandom. Essays upon essays, fan fiction, books about all kinds of aspects of Harry Potter. I have a book that my mom gave me that's kind of teaches you how to do divination, mm-hmm. read palms. I have like a that. crossword search that you gave me <laughs> that is all Harry Potter, which I love. That's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, tourism plays, viral YouTube videos, parodies, real-life Quidditch, and podcasts. And podcasts. Which is where we are. Um, so we do have a, a guest with us today but before we get in, disclaimer, one, we were on a time crunch, so we could have talked forever, right? but we had to kind of keep it tight. Uh, and then two, I think I say this in there, I read the books 22 times each when I was young. Each? Each. I have a weird thing with numbers. But I have, I've only read them once since then, and it was a couple years ago, but... I still feel pretty confident I could win any trivia contest. Oh, yeah. So far, uh, I have not let myself down in that regard. But I, I haven't. You. I haven't read them since I've become kind of in this show and looking at things from a feminist lens right. all of the time. I think there's sort of a natural thing that happens when you're a woman and you do that. Right. But I wasn't super analytical, is what I'm trying to say. But all right, <laughs> let's let our guest introduce herself. My name is Vanessa Volkan, and I am the co-host of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text and the host of Hot and Bothered um, on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. We treat Harry Potter like it is a sacred text. We say that um, sacred is an action and not a thing, and it depends on how you interact with the thing. And so we um, talk, sort of talk to Harry Potter and ask it questions about our own lives and see what it answers back. And then on Hot and Bothered, we do that with romance novels. Um, so reading and writing are ancient sacred practices, and on Harry Potter and Sacred Text, we treat reading as sacred, and on Hot and Bothered, we treat writing as sacred. And can you, what is the, the benefit of, of doing that, of treating it as a, a sacred text, or how does that help you shape um, episodes? Yeah, um, I think, I mean, there are a couple of benefits. First of all, it's just incredibly earnest. I think that, you know, we all can get bogged down in cynicism and sarcasm, and this is a place where we bring, like, genuine love and our unabashed and our nerddom. Um, I'm actually not sure what the, like, Karen for that would be, nerdery. <laughs> yes. But um, the other real benefit is community. You know, the, I mean, I feel like we all know this, but... Millennials and younger are having an absolute epidemic of loneliness with the isolation brought on by technology, leading to higher levels of depression and anxiety. Um, I worked with college students for the last seven years, and um, it's really wild to see the increase of acute mental health problems, and um, and it is entirely due to isolation, to social isolation, to feeling as though you're connecting even when you're not. Um, and so treating something as sacred, one of the key tenets is doing so in community. And so we have over 55 Harry Potter and Sacred Text reading groups all over the, all over the world. 
We've won in Latvia, started last week with 17 people. Um, we try to do as many live events as possible. And at the live events, we have people turn to each other. And Harry Potter is pretty special as far as building community. It is so ubiquitous. You know, you can, like, say Ravenclaw to someone who you don't otherwise speak the same language as, and they'll be like, me too. <laughs> um, and so really, you know, we, we need each other, and Harry Potter is a great way to bring people together who otherwise don't necessarily have a lot in common. Yes, I totally agree. And as we were discussing before we got started, I am a huge Harry Potter fan. I don't think it's a secret to anyone listening that that, that is true. And I was one of the people that when the first book came out, I grew up with the characters. I graduated high school when the last book came out. I graduated college when the last movie came out. And it was just a really formative and impactful thing on my whole life. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak to to your Harry Potter story and how you got into this specifically. Yeah, I have a really embarrassing Harry Potter story. I'm, I'm a little too old for it. Um, and so I didn't, I just didn't read it um, as a kid. And then in my early 20s, I started dating a guy who I ended up being with for seven years. He's wonderful and a good friend. And he on our first date, it came out that I hadn't read Harry Potter and he had a breath chain there. And so what we did for our second date was we went to a bookstore and I bought him Jane Eyre and he bought me the first two Harry Potter books and we swapped. And um, Jane Eyre is now one of his favorite books and Harry Potter is now how I make a living. So <laughs> I would say it was a successful swap. Yes. Um, and it really, you know, the first, uh, first book I could have read for him, and then the second one I was like, I freaking love this. Um, and yeah, I didn't really turn back. But what did end up happening was I went I went to divinity school, and I went to divinity school because I had worked in education for ten years and was getting really despondent over what I just realized that we actually know how to fix our education system, but it is like racism that prevents us as a country from fixing our education system. And that to me seems like a, a soul problem more than a more than a like education reform policy issue. And so I went to divinity school thinking that I wanted to understand sort of the heart behind behind like why we hate each other. And then I got about halfway through divinity school and was like, oh, it's really awkward that I'm here because I'm an atheist and I don't really know how to get the most out of this. And every time I try to play with the Bible, I get like really distracted. You know, I'm a grandchild of Holocaust survivors. And so any prayer and temples having to do with like God's benevolence, I'm like, you're like not great at that. Um, and so I asked one of my favorite professors if she would teach me how to pray using Jane Eyre because um, I loved Jane Eyre and so I thought it would be easier. And all that I realized is that, you know, Jane Eyre has the exact same problems that the Bible has and that every book has. It was born out of an imperfect world and um, and so it is incredibly imperfect. And we developed, you know, we developed this idea that, you know, I just talked about this idea. I didn't develop it. We first this idea that um, something doesn't have to be perfect in order for it to be sacred. Um, nothing, right? Like, nothing is perfect. And so I started 
running a Jane Eyre is a sacred text reading group. And it was a really beautiful and like hearty group of four women who came out every week in the Boston winter. And it was, it was the winter that we got a home binge you know, in a month. And it was just the electricity was always going out and it was still me. And um, one week my friend Casper came just to sort of see what I was up to. And at the end, he was like, this is really cool what you're up to, but it would be even cooler if we did it with a book that people actually wanted to read. And I was like, uh, what book do people actually want to read? And he was like, well, Harry Potter. And I was like, oh, yeah. That's a really good idea. Um, and we ran a class and 70 people came, and then we started hearing people from all over the world saying, I've heard you're running a Harry Potter secret test class, and I joined. I'd Skype in from New Zealand, and... Um, and our friend Matt, you know, we were trying to figure out what to do with that because people were sharing really vulnerable things and we didn't think screens were going to be a good idea. And our friend Matt recommended we make a podcast. And now we have this huge international community of people reading Harry Potter as sacred. That was a very long answer to your question. I, I love it. That's <laughs> it a good answer. It was great. Um, and that's something I've on a much smaller scale experienced when um, one of my best friends to this day, we met because she had a Harry Potter folder and I, it was seventh right, grade and right. I was like, oh, I've got to, I've got to talk to her. Um, so the header on your site reads, reading fiction doesn't help us escape the world, it helps us live in it. And I think for a lot of people, books, fictional books, and particularly maybe Harry Potter, which is really popular, but aimed towards children, even though adults love it as well, um, it's easy to dismiss. Um, and I was wondering if you could expound on that header and also what do you think the value of examining these works of fiction through a feminist lens, what do you think that value is? Yeah, I, I mean... I'll just talk, you know, talk about my own history with working, but I was a weird kid, as a lot of us were, and I uh, was, like, too loud, and um, everyone called me, like, bossy, and, you know, I was, like, an assertive girl in the 80s, um, and then I, I I read the book Caddy Woodlawn, and I felt so seen by the character of Caddy in a way that you know, and I, I had a best friend and two brothers that I was very close to, but really in a way that um, I had never felt seen by um, by a person, you know, just because you get to know all of their inner thoughts when you're reading a book. And, and my mom heard me talk about how much I loved it, and so she read it. And, um, you know, it was geared toward third graders. She read it fairly quickly, and... Um, and there was a scene between a mother and a daughter saying, I know that you think I don't love you um, because I always tell you to act more ladylike. And, but, um, I, like, basically, like, I love you so much. My mom boxed the two pages and, like, put a star on it. And it, I, like, it just changed my entire sense of self, knowing that my mom also, my the mom character resonated with my mom and Caddy resonated with me. And it gave us a way to talk about things that are really hard to talk about, right? When you're eight or nine years old, you don't pull your mom inside and say, I feel like you don't love me because I'm loud. Um, and your mom doesn't pull you aside and say, I know I get mad at you, but like, I love you more than anything. 
basically, I I just found that we need something to be focusing on outside of ourselves to have difficult conversations, right? You put two people in front of a football game and there's something like, yeah, every minute, they're going to be more likely to have that awkward conversation um, than if you're just like in a room together having a look into each other's eyes. Um, and we see that's just, you know, it, when I was a chaplain and I was meeting with university students, they would come and see me, and I'd say, hi, what, you know, what brought you to visit today? And they'd be like, oh, I don't know. Um, and so the deal I would always make is I'd say, you know, bring um, send me a favorite poem or a favorite essay or um, whatever, a favorite song, and I will read it, and then let's get back together in a week, and we will just talk about the thing together. And... You know, you're two minutes into talking about some David Foster Wallace short story, and suddenly it's like, well, I'm worried about my dad because, and there's just something so freeing about a text. Um, it means that you're not alone, right? If you get to know the inside of somebody else's thought process, um, and it resonates with you, it just it makes you feel like you're part of the world again. Um, so I just think that there's something really special and inspirational. And um, and I think that the more isolated and oppressed and marginalized you are, the more that that can be true. Um, you know, a friend of mine who ended up being a chaplain with me over at Harvard, he um, grew up as like a queer kid in rural North Carolina. And being able to read, you know, Dan Savage really, like, saved his life on a daily basis. So I think that, and, you know, reading James Baldwin, he's a huge James Baldwin fan, and I think reading Giovanni's room and knowing that he wasn't the only one like that um, saved him. So I, I think that, yeah, books, we can be more vulnerable in front of books. They don't judge us. Yeah, I agree. And you can you can connect and kind of it's a way to explore things or ideas that might be scary to you. Right. Yeah. It is. It's nice to be involved in something that you feel like you're a part of it and you're part of a different world that's kind of outside of yourself, which is really nice. And I did want to come back to Annie's question about how do you feel like this came in with like the feminist perspective of Harry Potter. Why was it so important that it came into this role for you as you're journeying and having the conversation about a connection in different type of literature or written text? Where did you come in? Like, and let's talk about feminism. Let's talk about the women of Harry Potter. How did that come about? So I, you know, I don't know what inspired me to do it exactly, but at the end of every episode of Harry Potter and the Detective, the last a character from the chapters. Not Casper's idea. Casper's a really big fan of blessings. He's a big fan of the poet John O'Donoghue, who talks a lot about offering blessings. Um, and so I was all for it. And then I said, but I'm only going to bless women. And Casper was just like, no, okay, Vanessa and her feminism. And, um, and it just became, I said I was going to do it for the first book, but now we're in book six and I have only blessed women. I had to skip one chapter where I just said I would like to bless all the invisible women because there were no women in it. And it just has become such a rigorous practice of um, of really trying to lift up the women who I might not notice otherwise. I don't think I'd ever really paid attention to Madame Osmerda 
or um, to Padma, or but I I would get sick of blessing Hermione. I love Hermione. She deserves all the blessings in the entire world. <laughs> but just out of sheer boredom of my own voice saying her name, I'd be like, I gotta find another woman in this chapter. <laughs> um, and also just the limitations has allowed has forced me, you know, to bless women that I never thought I would bless. You know, it's there's the chapter um, of Spinner's End, and Bellatrix and Narcissa are the only two women in that chapter. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, I got to find a way to open my heart and be compassionate to one of these two women. And, you know, I remember the chapter with um, when da- we get introduced to Dobby, Petunia is the only woman in that chapter. Um, and so it, it has forced me to lift up women at the way that we know that women are on the outside of, um, of boardroom tables and on the outside of a lot of decisions. It's forced me to, it's forced me to pay attention to the women on the outside rather than the men in the middle. Yeah, I before we did this, I made a list of all the the female characters, and I was just thinking about okay, well, how could I look at this one like as a fe- through feminism lens of feminism? And before I came in here, I read so many research papers, mostly about Hermione, of course, and it was very heated. I was kind of surprised at the ongoing debate about her character. Was one of the things whether she should have been with uh, Harry or Ron? Mm, no. Oh. Most of it was actually like out of context. She cried this one time. Oh, yeah. Can you hear uh, me? She's perfect. Everyone leave Hermione alone. I mean, she's obviously not perfect. She's actually quite violent and can be horrible. And what she does to Marietta Edstone is unforgivable. But she's wonderful. I agree. Okay, yeah. So Hermione, yeah, she is the source of a lot of the debate because she is the primary female character in the books. Um, in my personal take, when I was reading all of this criticism of her, I do feel like they took it out of context and didn't look within the arc of her whole character in all of the books because she does start out kind of being damsel. She's got a crush on Lockhart. But, like, if I examine one instance from when I was that age, I wasn't, like, a super feminist yeah. person. She was the one that came to the rescue almost yes. every time, no matter what situation was happening. Yes. So, yeah, let's talk about Hermione. You look so excited. I wish you could see her face right now. She's just grinning <laughs> from ear to ear and so excited right now. <laughs> I mean, my dog's middle name is Hermione, so that's so much fun. There it is. I love Harry Potter, too. I don't know if I'm any level of Harry Potter. She definitely wears all the gear. Yeah. <laughs> but I definitely do know all the books and did love, love everything about it. And I did love also, just to put this in context, that it did grow. Yeah. Uh, each book grew with the age of the children and the, like, the darkness and the depth of it grew with all of it, which is very fun. But, yeah, let's talk about Hermione. I think, for me, one of the first things I think of, what, of Hermione is she's so smart, such a badass. They would have died without her. And the interesting thing there is some people criticize that because she was had the higher expectations placed on her. If she hadn't done packed the bag and Deathly Hallows, for example, what would they have done? Right. Um, so she yeah. was just expected to. And she even complains about that. And that's the interesting thing about her, or one of them, because she is in many ways interesting. But uh, she calls it out. And she calls out multiple kind of gender stereotypes that they're placing on her throughout the series. 
um, which is, it's self-aware in a way like, yes, this is a problematic thing, but I recognize it's a problematic thing. Well, I don't think it's, uh, the boys aren't supposed to be like super feminist, right? It's exposing a dynamic that I think is absolutely the case. And the characters are supposed to be, from my understanding, even a couple years older than I am. And um, cause I, I think that, right, like they were born in 1980. Yep. And so, you know, that I these are like very realistic conversations that young people were having, right? Like, why should I do that? Because I'm the girl. Um, and so I think that they are discovering their voices. And I also think that, you know, I think that the thinking about Hermione as a black character is also really helpful because it, it would in some ways triple justify all of the taxes on her of being muggle-born in a wizarding world, of being a woman in a man's world, and then being a black witch in England. I think, of course, she's going to be the most accomplished young woman of her age. I mean, she's brilliant. But she, of course, she's going to be working harder than anybody else if she has all of that to carry on her. Um, so, yeah, and... I think the boys are good for her, but I also think that we all sometimes have dumb Ron type boys in our lives. And I don't think she's a problematic character. I think she's a complicated character. I agree. Um, I definitely didn't read, and I haven't read them again since, I mean, a couple of years, but I read them like 20 times when I was a kid. And I never was reading it like, she was just the strongest character. <laughs> like that's right. that's what I took from it. And I always yeah. thought she was working hard because she was a muggle-born and she right. did have something. She felt like she had something to prove. But also, she just really was into it. She right. Learned. She's just a type A person. Right. Exactly. Which mimicked their real personalities, apparently. But yeah, she was a nerd, type A personality, who absolutely wanted to make sure she was on point yeah. at all times. Yeah. Which most successful women or those who identify as females have to be to prove that they can do something, that they have to be 120% sure that they can prove themselves before they speak out loud, which is absolutely reflected with Hermione's character. And I, you know, what's so interesting that the fairest comparison to me within the book is Ernie McMillan, who's also like a studier and, um, loves being right about everlasting and he does not come off super well as a character. Um, he becomes prefect of Hufflepuff. He, you know, he's the only one who makes it into potions from Hufflepuff in the sixth year. And so as far as the direct comparison to Hermione, we, we see a boy who is as, you know, obsessed with success. And I think that he's written um, just as like snivelly as Hermione is. So I, I don't think that there's like a sexist gendered aspect to that. I think there is sexism within the book, but I don't think that the books are sexist. Right. I feel like in the book that I, I had the most problematic issues with the girlfriends, the yeah. Ron's girlfriend and then um, Harry's girlfriend. What's her name? 
Cho Chang? Yeah. In which they are seen as shrill and overly jealous, which, like, they kind of compete with Hermione almost as a pitted woman against a girl against girl, which was uh, always bothered me the most. I was like, why do they have to all hate each other? I think that's exactly right, especially Lavender, who is written for a laugh. And um, really, Ron is just terrible to her. Ron is using her to make Hermione jealous because he's guilty, feels, not guilty, he feels ashamed about the fact that he hasn't kissed anybody in Hermione who's kissed Victor friends. Mm-hmm. And he just uses her and then the book mocks her. Right. And it's really terrible. Right. And then she dies. I mean, right. it's just, it's really, Lavender gets the real short end of the stick. Agreed. Luckily, fan fiction, I think, has resurrected Lavender to a large extent, but the books don't do her any favors. Have you, Annie, included her in your fan fiction, Lavender, at any point? <laughs> so I've written a Harry Potter fan fiction. I don't know why Samantha's bringing this up right now. Because <laughs> she brought up fan fiction. <laughs> and you do a really great job with fan fiction, I understand. So I actually really don't like romance, so Lavender never featured. But maybe I should give her a redemptive arc. Right. Um, her and Hermione do some kind of adventure together. Yeah, Maybe. Maybe. My favorite romantic arc written for Lavender is that her and Parvati run away together because they realize they're not just best friends, but they're in love. But I love a love story. (laughs) (laughs) We have some more of our discussion around Harry Potter, but first, we have one quick break forward from our sponsor. Thank you, sponsor. Um, I did want to go back to Hermione because when it comes to reading about feminism and Harry Potter, what always comes up is spew. Yeah. <laughs> Do you uh, remember yeah, spew? Yeah, <laughs> It didn't get enough playtime on the movies. It wasn't in the movies at all. At all. And that was very sad about that. It was a very important part of her life. It really was. Yeah, so for listeners who don't know, this is the Society for Promotion of Elvish Welfare, which, which starts in Goblet of, the of Fire, the right. fourth one. None of the elves except for Dobby want. Right. Which I, I do find really interesting, because uh, you can say that's sort of like intersectional feminism at play. Right. Um, well, it's she, a lack of intersectional feminism. Exactly. Right. Right. So, <laughs> I didn't know this, but it was based on um, one of the first organizations for women in Britain called SPEW, Society for Prom- Promoting the Employment of Women. Oh. Oh, I did not know that till this second. Wow. Hey. Annie, bring in some new facts. <laughs> I try. I try. Um, and another thing she does is she starts Dumbledore's Army because something else that comes up a lot is building community to tackle issues. And she is the one often frequently spearheading these things right. and getting things done. So I, I, I feel like she does in, in a lot of ways encompass sort of where we are right now with feminism, which is interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I, and I think, you know, all we can ask from people is that they learn. Um, and she learns from you, right? Like it goes horribly. And then <laughs> she does such a better job as the, as the founder of Dumbledore's Army of, like, really scaffolding it um, so that everybody feels like they're a part of it, of getting, you know, buy-in early on, of having Harry be the teacher. Um, 
she does a much better job organizing rather than preaching. Um, and I feel like as far as like teenage activism goes, it's pretty great. She's like, by the time she's 15 or 16, she's nailed it. 15. Yeah. She's like Greta Thunberg. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this made me really happy. I wasn't expecting that. She just clutched her heart. I oh. did. I buy had pearls. They would have been clutched. <laughs> Sorry. Hermione, woman of the year in the Muslim, in the wizarding world. <laughs> um, so since in the interest of time, I had all these characters written out, but uh, because we're kind of on a time crunch, are there are there moments or characters that, as far as feminism goes, are your favorite, or are things that you really like to to dig into or discuss? Yeah, I think that. Um, Ginny has become a really interesting character to be thinking about with the Me Too movement happening. I, you know, the first three times I read the book, I did not read um, Ginny as, like, an assault victim, which obviously she is, with Tom Riddle's diary. And um, and I just think the most, one of the most beautiful moments in the whole series is when her, when Jimmy confronts Harry and says, I can't believe you didn't come talk to me. It's not like I have been possessed by Voldemort or right, anything. Yeah. And Harry goes, oh, my God, I'm sorry, I forgot. And she says, lucky you. Yeah. And that lucky you just holds the whole Me Too movement to me of, you know, lucky society that they've gotten to turn away from this. Lucky, lucky Harvey Weinstein with the fact that Yesterday we found out he's not going to get any jail time and he's not going to have to pay a dime of his own money. Um, and I think Jimmy is just holding up a movement with that lucky you. And um, and Molly's love for Jimmy, you know, she screams Jimmy in book two. It's all caps with an exclamation point. And then obviously there's the not my daughter, you bitch moment. Um <laughs> And so I think, you know, Molly and Ginny have a real bond that is, to a large extent, obviously they're mother and daughter, but I also think to a large extent is based in trauma and in Ginny wanting to be out in the world and Molly really wanting to protect her. Um, and it's just a, it's a really beautifully wrought um, description of um, a situation that I think is all too familiar. Yeah. Um... That's that's a good moment, and I also had forgotten that uh, in the sixth one, Ron mm-hmm. kind of slut shames her, right? And Jenny's like, "Oh yeah, you're gonna call me what? What? Yeah. <laughs> I know. Oh my gosh! It's like say it. What are you gonna call me? <laughs> yeah, do it. I dare you to do it because <laughs> we know she <laughs> could way, win in a duel. Right. Had you to hell. That's right. <laughs> she will." <laughs> Um, and I did want to touch on, because I feel like a lot of people forget about Lily Potter. Oh, yeah. And she, I mean, her act of sacrifice and love in the beginning is kind of the most powerful thing. Well, that's kind of her whole character overall with Snape and all that. She's just a compassionate individual yeah. who goes for the underdog. Yeah. And, and you only have kind of the sanitized version of what Harry knows because he's a narrator. But she does she does this thing, and that throughout the books, 
is this strong, powerful, kind of defining thing. Um, and I have read a lot of fan fiction where they're like, <laughs> you know, really she's the one that's powerful, the power you know not, and people don't credit her. Right. Or they should. Right. Yeah, and I and we do see some like memories of Snape. Um that she was willing to stand up to him. We see that memory of Lillian Petunia um, fighting it, you know, platform nine and three quarters, and Lillian trying to get Petunia on board um, with the fact that she's going to Hogwarts, right? We, we see a lot of Lily, and I think she's pretty exceptional. And even if she wasn't, I think the fact that she does, you know, I, I think that James gets the short end of the stick because James made the same sacrifice. Yeah. For both Harry and Lily. Um, but I love that this one act of sacrifice has given so much meaning. Because I think it can. I think one act of sacrifice can change the course of someone's life. Um, and it's really beautiful. Yeah. Oh, I just remember reading the seventh book and sobbing. <laughs> sobbing. <laughs> There's so many memories in her face. I know. <laughs> We do have a little bit more for you listeners, but first, we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So I did want to come back to, because you talked about Jane Eyre being your favorite <laughs> book. And I don't hear, I, I hear a few people talk about that, but I don't hear many people saying that as their favorite. I love Jane Eyre because I love oh. the Bronte sisters because um, I also like Weathering Heights. I know that's way out there <laughs> as well. Um, but what was it about Jane Eyre that made you connect so heartily in a, like almost a spiritual level with that book and the character? <laughs> Such a good question. First of all, it's just such a good book. It is. It's just such a good book. So there's that. Um, obviously, you know, I wrote it for the first time at 14, and I love a love story. So I, I'm pretty sure the first time I loved the love story. And then it just makes you where you are, you know? Then I reread it um, as I was thinking about going to divinity school and Spinjin just became like the most interesting character to me, how he tries to manipulate her with religion. Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, I've really just fallen in love with Bosa. Um, she is, she brings down the whole house with her when she goes. And I, I just love her for it. I love her for her carnality and that she isn't just going to die. She's going to destroy all she does. Um, and so I, I just think that it is, it is like so complicated and layered. Um, and I, I guess the other thing I love about it is just how weird it is. It There's really like is. some weird mystical fairies and sprites and, you know, lightning hitting trees symbolically. And it's, I mean, it's just, a delightful hot mess. And Mothering <laughs> Heights is obviously great because it's like that and even weirder. Right, well, even more so. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I just, you know, Jane, I read Mothering Heights for the first time when I was 15 or 16, and I didn't understand a word. And so now um, we're doing a, uh, um, 
Weathering Heights pilgrimage this June. So I'm in the middle of studying that. Um, It's really interesting having been to Howard now where the Bronte Parsonage is. Mm -hmm. And that town is really an Emily Bronte town. You go there and talk about Charlotte and they're like, no, thank you. We love Emily. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. It was even after Jane Eyre last year and they were like, oh, you're here for the wrong book. (laughs) <laughs> so, um, but we're going back this year with Weathering Heights, and so hopefully we'll get a little more. I was gonna say you, you'll get the correct book and a little more welcoming, right. huh? <laughs> maybe maybe they'll have moved on to Anne by then, but I think that um, yeah, I, I'm really excited to spend some time with Weathering Heights over the next eight months of really diving into it again, but. You know, Jane is just simpler and it's more straightforward yeah. and it's an easier way in than Weathering Jane, I remember it being one of the first books where they had the not-so-attractive girl being the lead yeah. and the way they yeah. described her. Yep. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. She, you know, you see yourself, she's a, you were invited to see yourself into Jane. Right. Oh, I like this a little bonus Jane Eyre discussion. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I was caught up in those times. Jane Austen, Jane Eyre. I mean, Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters, two yeah. of my favorites. Mm-hmm. I'm old school that way. Really, <laughs> really old school, apparently. <laughs> you, should talk, you should come on one of our pilgrimages sometime. That oh, be we'll awesome. be there. <laughs> <laughs> Plan number 50-something trips. Wait, like, anytime people invite us, I hope they're serious. We <laughs> We're won't <coming>. show up. <laughs> oh, no, I'm totally serious. We should talk about it. <laughs> yes, Please. <laughs> well, um, we have a Bronte and an Austin pilgrimage. Oh my yeah. gosh! Mm-hmm. All right, all right. Yeah, we'll we'll be in touch. We've to, we have to go that way. Yes. Yes. England, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and would you like to tell the listeners where they can find you? Yep. Yeah, um, you can find us uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. You can find Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Or if you are more of a romance novel person, you can find Hot and Bothered. And that brings us to the end of this interview. Yes, it was so fun. We could have kept going forever. There, as you heard, we were talking about doing that tour with oh, uh, Jane Eyre and for all the Bronte stuff and the um, Jane Austen stuff. But you know, we should have talked about going on the tour for Harry Potter stuff. Can we do that? Is that yes. a thing? Can we do that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, my gosh. This, you can go visit... The studio in London, the okay. making of Harry Potter, yeah. and it's. I've so I've been to the theme parks. That thing in London is my favorite thing. I went to the uh, train station, train yes. stop. I went there when I would visit my friend in London. She took me there. She's like, "Here it is." And I was like, "Oh, people waiting in line. I'm not doing that." Well, <laughs> to talk about the the power of Harry Potter. That's not even they built that right. because you can't actually get to the real one. But so many <laughs> tourists were jumping over trains and well, not jumping over trains, but they were they were taking Trying to get risks. to it, right? Uh, so they built a, a, a fake one that tourists could take. Please just with. come over here. Stay away from the, there. Don't, don't go near the, the, the train tracks. It's going to be okay. <laughs> um, really quickly did want to touch on some characters because I know we didn't. There are so many that we could have talked about. One a fan favorite is Luna. Um, and one of my favorite things about Luna is the relationship between her and Harry because... It's platonic, and, and I love when she says he invites her to the slug club, the slug ball, right? And she says, "Oh, people will think we're friends." And Harry says so earnestly, "You are my friend, right?" right? And it's just nice. I feel like we don't get that kind of relationship, even though it didn't have a lot of screen time. We don't see that a lot. He's never judging her for right, and she's just gonna be herself 
and that's fine. Well, I love the Luna and what's his name? The other one, <laughs> the one that could have been Harry Neville. Neville. I love that uh, Luna and Harry, Neville are such good friends. In the movie, they do a little more in the movie than they do in the book, but like, yeah. they try to kind of protect each other almost. It was mm-hmm. super sweet, super cute. Yeah. The oddballs odd balls together. Yes, yeah, speaking of oddball, Tonks, she's yeah. a, a pretty big... I love that she's somehow both really clumsy but really good at her job. Right. Because I feel I can connect. And I think they don't play enough of, up about her being a part of that the Bellatrix and um, yeah. all of their family. Mm-hmm. I think that's important that they kind of kind of escape that over. Yeah. In, in the movie, for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. They kind of barely mention it. And then even in the book, they kind of bypass it to being her in love with mm-hmm. Lupin. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then there's Professor McGonagall. Of course. Super tough. I love I love her stuff in the last book when she's defending Harry. I love it. Like it doesn't and it doesn't show it in the movie, but I yeah. love that scene where she's going up against the two the twins. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah, that is a great scene. Did want to touch on Fleur de Lacour too, because she's really interesting from where she starts as uh, Vila, half Vila. Right. And that is all about looks, although people forget they're also extremely dangerous. Well, the whole uh, school is just all female. Yeah. And I feel like that's not mentioned enough in the strength between them themselves. It's kind of like downplayed, I feel like, because it's based on looks and how deceptive they can be and or, you know, tricksy. What does Mr. Weasley say? He says says something like, see, boys, this is why you don't go for looks alone. Uh, and she is the unfortunately the worst competitor, I would right. say, in the Goblet of Fire. Who but, needs the most help, it seems. Yes, um, but she did go on to become a pretty central and powerful character. And that's not to say she wasn't powerful then. It's just the way she was portrayed, portrayed, and uh, especially in comparison with all the other champions, she did come out looking like the weakest one. And then villains, we have to talk about Umbridge. Oh, ugh. Talk Ugh. about problematic white woman. Right. She, that's the angriest I ever got. I had to close, order the Phoenix, the fifth one, after she banned him from Quidditch. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even care about Quidditch. I was just so mad at the injustice of it. Oh, she's infuriating. But I do think having a female villain like that, it just added so much. I mean, clearly, I think a lot of people would say she was their least like the most hated character. Right. And that's that's a testament to oh gosh, the writing, but also the actress. The, oh, she, she did. Kill, she job. was exactly that character. She yeah. encompassed everything and embodied that character to the full. Yeah. What's her name? She's a famous English actress. Amelda Stanton, Stanton? Yeah. And just having that wide cast of here are all these heroes, strong female heroes, but also here are some villains. Bellatrix being one, she is extremely powerful. I think people forget at one point she's dueling Luna, Jenny, and Hermione, I think. She's mm-hmm. dueling three people at mm-hmm. once. She was powerful. She is. And she's often put in contrast of Lily represents love and pure love, and she represents just ambition and hate. Like, they're the opposite side. She also loves. She does. She does. Um, and she was she was a really frightening character, I found. Very. Yeah. And then there's Petunia. 
and Narcissa, mm-hmm. who I do find interesting because even if you probably classify them as villains, the the, the mother part of their characters and them going to protect out of their way to protect their children. Right. Which is very much of a theme through all of it, yes. whether it's Molly Weasley or Lily, all of them is very protective, very on point, whether it's bad or good, mm-hmm. they're doing something for in the name of their children. Yeah, and that's one thing I know some of the criticism I read of, of characters like that and Molly Weasley is you're putting them in these gender stereotypes, the mom... And then in response, uh, J.K. Rowling, especially to to Molly Weasley, she says um, the moment when Molly kills Belichick, she said she wanted Molly to have her moment to show that because a woman had dedicated herself to her family does not mean that she doesn't have a lot of other talents. Right. Yes. And um, one thing I wanted to close out with, because I do generally try to separate actors from their characters, um, but... Emma Watson is such an interesting case because I remember being 10 years old feeling extremely jealous that she had been cast. <laughs> and she said in an interview, I, I literally, I remember this perfect. I didn't have to look it up. She said, when asked about Hermione, she said, I hate her, I hate her, I hate her. Because she was into fashion and she thought Hermione just was, wasn't cool. But then she went, as she grew up, as Emma Watson grew up, she grew to love Hermione and mm-hmm. loved all those things about her, that she was a warrior and she was smart. And I, I just, I feel like a lot of us go through that, mm-hmm. where we hate the thing. Uh, adolescence. Yes. We, we are awkward children and we hate everything about ourselves. Yes. Um, and then now she's a feminist activist and she's the voice of UN's He for She. She was appointed as the UN Women Goodwill Ambassador in July 2014. So, she started a book club. She did. She I mean, got good recommendations on there, just too. Saying. But a Google search of, is Emma Watson too pretty to play Hermione, turns up almost half a million results. Right. You would never, ever see that with any of the male actors. Is, is Daniel Radcliffe too handsome to play Harry Potter? That would not happen. No, but I think they did question his height. They did. That's a separate episode. Yeah. They also questioned his eyebrows. They said they were too feminine. Look, we're we're unpacking Weird. a thing at right the very end that sh- we should come back to. So later. many things. Yeah. So clearly, we we blew through those. I could talk about this forever, but we'll we'll have to end it here today. Uh, definitely go check out Vanessa's podcast. Go go find her on the social medias. Women. Oh no, it's uh, Harry Potter and Sacred the Death. Sacred Text and Hot and Bothered, which I just love that. <laughs> Yes, and if you would like to reach us, you can. Our email is stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Instagram at stuffmomnevertoldyou or on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Oh, thanks, Andrew. Thanks to our guest, Vanessa and Hannah, for uh, helping to set it up. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff Mom Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 